Welcome to the Motor City Hoops Podcast, your home for all things Detroit Pistons and NBA. Thank you for choosing Motor City Hoops, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello and welcome to episode 58 of the Motor City Hoops podcast. This is an extremely exciting episode because this is episode number one for Motor City Hoops being exclusively part of the Detroit Bad Boys podcast lineup. Hopefully the rollover went smooth and if you were subscribing and listening to the podcast, you were able to find us relatively easily. I did notice that some of the previous episodes got lost in the rollover, so I do apologize for that. I want to take a quick second to thank Mike and the Hoop Heads Podcast Network for the opportunity they gave Motor City Hoops to get started and to Laz and Sean for this new opportunity with Detroit Bad Boys. But today I'm absolutely juiced to be joined by a good friend, fellow lover of the game of basketball and its history and native of Michigan, Matt Issa, creator of Quest for the Best and Rise Network. Matt, welcome back to the Motor City Hoops podcast for the second time and thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me, Bryce. It's it's a pleasure, man. Um, I'm really excited for you and what's been happening with Motor City Hoops. And congrats on the on the move. It's really yeah, cool. Yeah, man. Thank you, thank you. It means a lot. And always, I want to give a big shout out to my guy Wes Davenport, who's helping me out with the podcast. He makes things so much easier. Tonight, we're recording this episode immediately following game number three of the Pistons season, a 104-122 road loss to the Hawks. We will be giving our instant analysis and recap of that game to start off and then flow that into the storylines developing around this team after three games. We'll then talk a little about Cade Cunningham before we dive into Matt's amazing project, The Quest for the Best. But let's get started with tonight's game. Down 18-28 to 28 into the first quarter. We just couldn't score the ball, Matt. We really struggled on the offensive end. I felt like the defense really held its own for a long time in the first quarter. Four seven first quarter turnovers out of the Hawks. The second unit had an awful stretch to end the quarter. I'll talk more about the second unit here in a little bit. They gave up three offensive boards on a possession. Then they turned it over, gave up a three as the buzzer went off. What were kind of your impressions on how that first quarter went and how the game started for the Pistons? Yeah, I mean, it was offensively like the stagnation the lack of uh, shot making was to be expected jeremy grant obviously out you know kate cunningham out their two best scorers arguably however you want to slice it both out and i think that led to this game kind of going like uh you know what it reminded me of it's like when there's like a bad football team but they have like a solid defense say like you know between 15th and 20th in the league whatever and they're just going like hard they're stopping every possession but their offense can't get any points and it's like 10 to 7 at the end of the first half and it's like oh my god this team's like you know playing with them and all the people that bet that you know they weren't going to cover the spread are all pissed off now and then some bad play happens which we're going to talk about later i kind of identified it the moment it happened i'm like in my head in my notes i'm like yeah this is going to be it this is going to be the one where this is the straw that breaks the camel's back and then the game just opens wide open, and that's kind of what happened tonight. Yeah, I agree. I think it's really hard to be really good defensively for four quarters, for even three quarters, when your offense isn't scoring. Like, there's just some sort of energy that comes with being able to see the ball go in the basket, and you explained it perfectly. That's kind of what it looked like. I, I equate it to teams I've coached in high school in basketball and football. We had good defensive teams, but at a certain point when the offense isn't scoring, the defense eventually lets up, the energy lets up, and that's kind of what happened as we went throughout this game. Of course, I'd be you know remiss not to mention that Cade did not play as we assumed he wouldn't, and then Jeremy Grant didn't play. That was kind of something that came about today with an elbow infection. Pistons still only down 54-62 at halftime, down eight. Olenek was just flat out really good in the first half. Love that Sadiq Bay is getting involved on the boards. A great closeout to the first half by Killian Hayes, which we'll talk about more when we get to our biggest takeaways. But then in the third quarter, like you said, that's when it happened. Down 79-95 by the end of the third. The Hawks were just so good offensively. Trey Young is big time. We'll talk a little bit more about the Hawks later. 
just a little end of the game stats before we get into our takeaways. So we finished the game, the Pistons 9-33 from three, another storyline that we can discuss, out-rebounded by 13. But I want to dive right into, if you don't mind, Matt, what's that play that you were discussing and had mentioned where you felt like the, the tides really turned and you could kind of tell the Pistons just weren't able going to be able to stay with the Hawks? I feel like you'll, you're going to remember it right away. It's um, I can't remember what the exact score was. I think they were down maybe eight, and they're out on the perimeter. I forget who's passing the ball, but Sadiq Bey tries to jump the route, and he misses. He's late on it, and then whoever had the ball, I can't remember. I should have wrote it down, but he kicks it to the corner, and I believe it was either Cam Reddish or Trey Young in the corner, and they hit a three, and I'm just like, that's going to be it. Like Because all game... They were rotating so well. It was awesome. And then in the drop, I, I tweeted about this, but Garza was really good. I really liked what I saw from him in the drop today. I mean, you highlighted it in your film, Don't Lie, like a month ago, that Garza does he does play hard, and he's not like this guy who can be exposed out on the perimeter that easily. And, I mean, Coach Fran McCaffrey, he kind of talked about it too when I talked to him about it. But, um I thought that play when the defense was out of rotation, that was going to be it. Just because when you've been rotating so well, in my experience, once it kind of breaks once and you allow that open shot, it it starts to happen a little bit more and more. And then once the game got out of hand, you could tell they were kind of out of it at this point. It's kind of like, you know, whatever for them. Yeah, I agree. Like like you said, like it just it we're just holding on, holding on and when we get to the plays of the game, I'll talk about a couple stretches where it looked like the Hawks were just going to break away and and blow the Pistons out and I thought the Pistons responded in the way we've seen this team do even back to last year, but eventually they just weren't able to continue to muster up enough offensively and then the defense let down as we've already talked about. But I want to talk about Killian Hayes. I thought he showed some really good signs. I know just talking to you before the podcast, before the episode that you've See, you saw um, some good things or things that you were encouraged by. I'm going to do a breakdown of his, hopefully first thing in the morning, have it out tomorrow on Detroit Bad Boys, a film don't lie over his first three games, really just focus on focusing on him going to the rim and what we're seeing from him right now. But what I loved was his aggressiveness. He went to the rim. He took advantage of the opportunities in the that he was creating, and we saw him taking shots, not just passing it out, he didn't shoot a high percentage in the lane. He did knock down a couple catch-and-shoot threes. But this was a baby step for me in terms of Killian Hayes offensively. What did you see from Killian offensively and then also on the defensive end? Yeah, I mean, one thing that we talked about and, like, you've been at the forefront of this kind of movement is give Killian, like, time. And so many people today in our society as a whole, that's, like, a whole different psychological issue. But, you know, they're not as patient anymore. I blame it on TikTok. And we kind of just want things to happen overnight. You know, LaMelo Ball had a great rookie year. Anthony Edwards in the second half of the rookie year really came onto the scene. And then Killian, you know, he, he had the injury. And when he did come back, he was in probably like a suboptimal situation for his skill set, which is kind of what I'm going to get to next, where for me, Killian's an interesting case study because he's like a connector, but he can't shoot the three ball. And then on defense, he's like, not a good point of attack defender but his high IQ allows him to be a really good off-ball defender and that to me is somebody who plugs in well with a ball dominant really skilled offensive player who's good at the point of attack and guess who's the guy that the Pistons drafted first overall this year who's been injured the first couple games we haven't got to see them together yet who does fill that void and that's you know the aforementioned Cade Cunningham and so what I see here is I think that they will be, I'm not the perfect, but a really damn good pairing for each other's skill sets And that, you know, Kate is the on-ball guy. He's an incredible shooter, great passer. And then Killian, like we talked about in the first time I was here, I believe, you know, he's also a high IQ guy. And then high IQ guys just have a tendency to be able to ball together because I feel like that. If you if you can think the game of basketball and you're you know athletic enough to be a professional athlete, there's always going to be room for you in the NBA. But having those two guys and then having Killian as like the connector, secondary playmaker on offense, and then in defense, Cade's you know he's a, in my eye a really good point of attack defender. You know he likes to get up in your face. He's physical. He's long. He's smart. And then Killian with his IQ is a good off ball defender. So I think that's a really nice pairing in the backcourt. And tonight we saw. When he hit a couple free throws, his confidence got up. You know, he's a young guy. He relies on things like confidence. When his confidence got up, he started getting aggressive. He made some nice plays 
off scratch. It was, it was really cool. And it was weird to me, even though it was a blowout, that he got taken out midway through the third quarter and you don't bring him back in the fourth quarter. Because it's like, it's not like you're trying to rest the guy. I mean, why wouldn't you play him? I know, like, he has, like, an injury history per se, but still, like, I don't understand that. Yeah, no, that was something that was really blowing up on Twitter here right before we started recording, and I'm sure there's a lot of chatter right now. I don't like to do these things too much because who am I to judge an NBA coach? But yeah, I mean, I wish we would have saw Killian Hayes get a, a six-minute rotation. There were other starters that were playing in the fourth quarter. I'm not really sure why Killian didn't get those minutes other than Saban Lee. What I think it's interesting there, and we're not going to be able to dive into it right now, but will be interesting whenever Cade comes back, is you kind of talked more about Cade being the on-ball guy and Killian in the off ball and you seem relatively confident in that where I think a lot of people have resigned to the fact that Killian's going to be the on ball and Cade's going to Cade's going to have to play off ball so it'll be really interesting when we do see Cade get back which one of those scenarios we play out or probably it'll be a mixture of both but Along with the with Killian Hayes tonight, another thing that I took away was the second unit just couldn't hold its own without JJ and Kelly Olynyk. And we, we talked about Kelly Olynyk. I'm going to talk about him more here at the Player of the Game segment. Probably shouldn't give that away. I got to do better about that. But Kelly Olynyk really came out, scored the ball well, got the start over, not over, but with Jeremy Grant sitting, Josh Jackson got the start, I guess you would say over Frank Jackson, who got moved back to the second unit, but the second unit had a really bad plus minus. Corey Joseph's been disappointing. Same with Hamadou Diallo. It just kind of shows you when you have guys out, two starters out, you have to move guys into the starting lineup, that second unit really suffers, and especially when you probably take the best two second unit guys, Josh Jackson and Kelly Olynyk, and put them into the starting lineup. Any thoughts about that second unit and those guys we're seeing there Matt from Corey Joseph to Hamadou Diallo Trey Lyles etc yeah I mean when you said you know can't hold her own you're right on the money I was uh I was laughing to myself when you said that because I remember this one play in the fourth quarter where uh, I think it was uh Jackson Frank Frank Jackson I don't know I said Jackson Frank the the Twitter guy <laughs> but um Frank Jackson had the ball in the corner and he was wide open for three and in my head I'm just there's no way this shot's going to go in. And sure enough, he, you know, shoots it over the rim like three feet. And, I mean, that to me is just like one play that kind of exemplifies the state of the Pistons' second unit, union, unit right now. And I, I'm kind of, kind of leaning on the idea of Olenek being in the starting five. I, I know it was just one game, but, like, I saw some stuff tonight, and I think his passing with Stu in the backcourt would be a nice combination, but... When Grant and Cunningham come back, I, I don't know how it would work. I don't know who he'd put on the bench. But, I mean, I think he was awesome tonight. We'll talk more about Olenek. But, like, I haven't watched Olenek play. I played, I watched half of the first game, more so for how much I'm in love with Zach Levine right now. But um, I haven't really watched Olenek much last year because he was on the Rockets. I just I don't remember him having this like shot making ability and some of the stuff he was doing off the dribble it was just like I mean it didn't look right but it, it worked for a little while and then obviously he's always got the shooting he's always been a strong passer in the post but he was really impressive tonight yeah I agree he's been really good all the way back to the preseason um we've talked about this at length on the podcast that you know, myself included, wasn't real sure about the Kelly Olynyk signing when it happened. We wanted the high riser, the lob threat, talked about it at length, need it, don't need to get back into it. But I came around once doing a film breakdown of his, the preseason games, he looked good. I think he's a perfect fit in the second unit. And I just think that he, whenever everybody's healthy, and if assuming we're trying to win games, I still think that's the goal of the Pistons this season, even though it's starting to go the other way with the slow start, where people are already looking at lottery prospects. But I think Kelly Olunik is is kind of uh, uh, the glue guy in that second unit that's going to help the second unit be successful. Same thing with Josh Jackson, who had a really good game tonight. And I want to talk about one more thing before we officially get to player of the game and some of the plays and then the storylines. And that's the 10-man rotation. So this is something I've talked a lot about. Other guys have talked about on Twitter. And that's thinking that maybe Casey, Dwayne Casey would stagger minutes. So like tonight could have been an example where Sadiq Bey could have subbed out early and then got the second unit for four minutes or. Um, with Isaiah Stewart and Kelly Olynyk both starting, you sub one of the, excuse me, he could have slid down to the four when you subbed Isaiah Stewart or Kelly Olynyk out so that they could get the second unit five minutes. I apologize. I got ahead of myself there. So 
you know, the same thing with Killian Hayes and Cade Cunningham that you sub whenever they're both on the floor and start, you sub one of them out a little earlier. So that way they can play the second unit point guard minutes when the other one subs out. And it just doesn't seem like that's going to be something Dwayne Casey does. He seems set on a 10 man rotation, no matter who's available to play. No staggering of minutes as we saw tonight. Luca Garza got the backup five minutes. And this isn't a, a knock on Luca Garza. I don't hate the fact we saw him play. I just think it's interesting. What, what are your thoughts on that? Um, I don't know if there's like a trend in the NBA where, you know, 10 man rotation is kind of the thing. It seems like every team is a little different, but are you a little more pro that way, con that way? Maybe just in, you know, when we get to playoffs and you shrink the rotation, or would you like to see a little bit of that from Dwayne Casey with this Pistons team? I mean, yeah, for first like a couple of weeks of the regular season, first couple of months of regular season, it's like throughout history, you know, you play 10, 11 guys, and then in the playoffs you go 8, 7, whatever it is for your team construct. But um, what you're saying, and I agree with you on this, is like Casey did something that, you know, hasn't been done probably since, you know, I was playing my player 2K in like the third grade where he's playing all five starters at once. Then he's going like in the second quarter, like all five bench guys at once, which is unless your team is like the Atlanta Hawks where you actually have 11 guys who can legitimately play playoff minutes. Not a good thing to do. You usually want one or two starters out there with like the three or four bench guys and you want to stagger it that way. Um, Just an aside, I really want to talk a little bit about Garza when we get the chance. Yeah, absolutely. So, and yeah, that was my thing. That's the other thing that's been brought up. I think you could say, you know, between Jeremy Grant, Sadiq Bey, and then I know we continue to talk about Cade Cunningham, who we haven't even seen play. But, you know, you'd almost want one of those three guys on the floor at all times. And we're just doesn't look like we're going to get to see that if he continues to. It's not a true platoon. He's not going five in, five out. But eventually he gets all five starters on the bench with all five second unit guys. And I just I don't want to say there's a better way. I just feel like I would like to see you know, one of Jeremy Grant or Sadiq Bey on the floor at all times. So tonight it was Kelly Olynyk and Sadiq Bey. And the, how many minutes did the Pistons play tonight without either one of those guys on the floor because we had the entire second unit? Or even Josh Jackson, who was probably the third best player, and all three of those guys were on the bench. So I just, uh, again, this is another one of those times I wish I could set in in a coach's meeting in the office and just find out. Maybe it's just because it is the start of the season, like you said, and they're figuring things out, but something I'm going to watch for as we move throughout the season. Real quick player of the game, I had Kelly Olynyk, 21-6-4. I thought he was really good. Sadiq Bey, you could go there. He 21 7 and 3 I think his rebounding has been great and Josh Jackson I do want to ask you about Josh Jackson and then we can talk about Luca Garza Matt but Josh Jackson tonight what did you think about his game he's a guy that's a little bit polarizing with Pistons fans kind of came back to Detroit his home city to resurrect his career a little bit up and down he has good moments he has bad moments sometimes he'll drive you a little crazy but so far in the young season I think he's played well we've seen some of the stretches of bad but I think more often than not so far it's been good what did you think about Josh Jackson tonight well I mean trying to keep my personal biases out of the picture because as you know um well actually you might not know because it's not like common knowledge but Josh Jackson was like good friends with Bridges growing up as kids Miles Bridges that is and they were both supposed to play at Michigan State together and I forget like how how like early on he decided not to play with Michigan State but it was like pretty close to commitment time where he decided you know what, I'm not gonna play at Michigan State I'm gonna go play at Kansas so I'll always be sad about that just because you know I'm a Spartan but um now, in terms of his on-court stuff, it's actually interesting we're talking about Josh Jackson because I, um, ironically enough, am watching some film on him for a different piece I'm working on, completely unrelated to Detroit basketball. But uh, I hate I hate saying this because that's it's such like a it's such a oh man I'm gonna say another word I hate saying, but it's such like a casual thing to say. Like casuals say this all the time, like empty calorie stats, but like. To me, Josh Jackson really does put up empty calorie stats. He's um, on offense. He lacks the natural balance, like for sure. It's like obvious where he can only think of one thing when he has the ball in his hand. It's either going to be I'm going to score or I'm going to pass. It's not he doesn't he doesn't have the capacity to kind of decide as the play progresses what he's going to do, which is of course something that all the natural great offensive engines can have, and you don't need that to be an NBA player you don't need to be an offensive great but 
I remember I like not remember, but I watched it like 20 minutes ago in the fourth quarter. Um, he would just drive down to the rim and he bullied his way into a couple easy layups and the Hawks had kind of given up, you know, to enhance his stats a little bit. But he was, I know you talk about him a lot on your podcast. You know, when I'm listening, I always, I always kind of ask myself, I'm like, is the state of the Pistons really that bad where Bryce has to spend like seven, eight minutes every podcast just talking about Josh Jackson? But I mean, again, I don't watch nearly as much Pistons basketball as you do, but in my eyes, I don't see him being like one of the seven, eight integral parts. Like if the Pistons are the Hawks in three years and they have this nice deep 10, 11 man roster, it won't be Josh Jackson on that roster, if you know what I mean. Real quick, so I think that's why I we talk about Josh Jackson is because he's kind of right on the fringe. You know what I mean? So, like, that makes him intriguing. We all know Cade Cunningham's going to be here. We know, we think we know Sadiq Bey, Isaiah Stewart, you know, I believe Killian Hayes. But I think Josh Jackson, it's, it's a little bit of the unknown. He's in a contract year. I think he kind of came out of nowhere last year where nobody was expecting, there weren't a lot of expectations for him. And so I think that's why he is an intriguing player. And then every once in a while, he blows up with this game or this stretch of a game where you're like, oh my gosh, if he just put it together. And I think we should know better by now than to believe, excuse me, that that's going to happen. But I think it's still, the human nature is still to be intrigued by those things. I I understand what you're saying, but I guess that's kind of why he is is so talked about. And I think he's going to be talked a lot lot about because when we get closer to the trade deadline, there's going to be a lot of Pistons that want to see him flipped um, for assets. And then there's going to be others who don't. And I think that'll be a hot topic. But you brought up Luka Garza. We love talking Luka Garza on the podcast. Pistons fans love Luka Garza. I haven't seen a whole lot through preseason and and the little bit of time he's got in the regular season to make me believe any more strongly that he's going to be an NBA player in the next few years anyway. I I tend to think that maybe you feel a little bit differently. So in the time that you saw, like Luka Garza got meaningful second unit rotation minutes tonight. What did you see from Garza that you liked or didn't like? We talked about this a little bit early on. You know, I, I obviously am a fan of your work. You're one of my closest friends on Twitter. And I, I watch, I listen to all your your Luka Garza film, Don't Lie stuff. And I also had the opportunity to talk to Coach Fran McCaffrey for the quest for the best. And both of you kind of iterated the same point where this guy is not, just because of his build, his frame, it's usually like the prototypical, okay, yeah, this guy's not going to be able to dance on the perimeter, but he he can dance with guards. And he, he tries really hard in the gro- drop coverage and tonight we saw a couple times Trey Young, especially in the first quarter, tried testing him with a drop, and he he stayed step for step for him, step for step with him, and that was pretty impressive to me. Um, I I, I kind of disagree with you a little bit. Can you tell me why you think like it's gonna be a couple of years until he's an NBA player? Because to me, like I think probably, I mean, you know, obviously this year he'll be a backup center for a very bad team the way it looks right now, but I think by next year. There's a legitimate case he could be, you know, part of a 10-man rotation on a solid basketball team. Yeah, so I would say my thing with him is, and this is all predicated or dependent upon the fact that the offensive game is true. Like, he's going to knock down shots, which we haven't seen him do. I know it's not easy to come in and make shots in the situation he's being put in, but that's the situation he's in right now. So uh, I would like to see him make shots from the perimeter. I think that's going to be a huge part of his offensive game. Same thing if he gets any post opportunities. I do think he's a good offensive rebounder because he works hard and he anticipates well. I don't think he's ever even a neutral defender. I think we would disagree on that part of it. I think he's going to be a negative defender, even though he will try hard and will be good at being in the right place. Maybe he gets to neutral. I could give somebody that. What I think is most important for his game, and then I'll let you come back at me, is his defensive rebounding. I think he has to become a really, really good positional defensive rebounder and his short roll passing. I think he has to be able to distribute the ball in a Kelly Olynyk type way. Maybe at not as high level, but he's got to be able to come into a DHO and drop the backdoor pass. He's got to be able to catch in the post, feel the help coming, and make the skip pass. Those are the parts of his games I want to see develop and haven't necessarily seen on an NBA floor up to this point. Yeah, so I'll stipulate that you're right. Um, He probably will never be like a net neutral defender, and that's only because the position of center that he plays has a higher threshold than like a guard or forward for what it takes to be a net neutral. Like technically speaking... Trey Young could probably become a net neutral point guard just because 
the bar is so low for what you need from a net neutral defender at point guard. But my thinking here with Luka is that with the offense that you talked about, with the defensive rebounding, with how hard he plays, I mean, the guy is sprinting up and down the floor. He can be part of a 10-man rotation for a solid team, a solid playoff team. And in the playoffs, depending on who you're matching up with, so say you're playing against the Philadelphia 76ers, who have, of course, Joel Embiid, you're going to want size on the floor at all times. I think Luke and Garza can give you 10 to 12 minutes in a playoff series down the road. A game, 10 to 12 minutes in a playoff series. But comparison, like if you're playing the Clippers in a playoff series and they're running five out, there's probably no place for Luka Garza on the floor. So what I'm saying is, like, I think that by next year he'll be, like, a worthy piece of a 10-man rotation for whatever the Pistons are trying to do, whether they're, like, a team that's on pace to win 40 games or 35. I think he can contribute to that. And then down the road, um, looking for this Pistons team, I think the best-case scenario is he's a part of your 10-man regular season rotation and then he's a situational guy for the playoffs. You know how the Clippers ran Pat Beverly in one series, and then the next series they used a little bit more Luke Kennard of that sort of um, caliber-type player he'd be. Yeah, I agree with that, and that's why I actually said in one of my Film Don't Lie breakdowns for the pre- the player previews, I actually wouldn't mind seeing Luca Garza put some of the weight back on. I-, I respect the heck out of the fact that he lost 30 pounds and tried to you know get quicker and all those things. At the end of the day, I just don't think he's ever going to get quick enough and his feet are going to be fast enough and lose enough weight, quote-unquote, to get where he can really stay with guys. So I would rather him put 10 or 15 pounds of muscle back on to be the type of defender you're talking about to go up against the Joel Embiid's, the Nikola Jokic's, um, the Nikola Vucevic, you know, that we saw from the Chicago Bulls, and on down the line, those type of guys. So I wouldn't mind him actually putting a little more weight back on to go against those guys. To finish this off before we go into the storylines, I do want to talk about some of the plays of the game. These aren't quite as good as the first one because this game got, game got out of hand. There were a couple stretches like in the mid-second quarter, Sadiq Bay with a three, Lyle's offensive board and finish, and then a Bay layup. So there were nice little stretch there. And then a minute or so later, Hayes got his first catch and shoot three, Olenek and one, even though he missed the free throw, and a Stewart putback. So I kind of always look for those stretches in games where you get multiple possessions in a row, offensive possessions a row the problem with this one was we weren't getting stops on the other end so those plays of the game even though they kind of let us hang around at eight to nine points they never got the Pistons back within two or to three because we weren't getting stops on the other end same thing happened in the mid third Hayes other three-pointer followed by a bay three but Bogdanovich matched with the three and then a turnover and a layup for him as well so just I think it kind of speaks to how good this Hawks team was and is and how the defense was never really able to get those stops whenever the offense finally found its flow but speaking about offense I want to talk about Sadiq Bay, Matt and what we've seen from his expanded offensive game through three games we he is a guy that shot the ball extremely well last year as a rookie and a lot of questions including by myself on whether or not he could expand his game to kind of be a creator be a good passer get to the rim and finish and so far through three games we've seen him do that pretty well what did you see from him tonight um the three-point shooting hasn't been as good from him so far this season, but what about the rest of his offensive game? Yeah, um, I know I've only watched one-and-a-half Pistons games this year. Um, you've watched three plus the preseason stuff, so you're better for, better qualified to talk about this. But if you recall when I was last on, I said the best-case scenario for Sadiq Bey would be he's Clay Thompson. And I think that I'm wrong in that he could have a better outcome because at least from what I've seen in a smaller sample size this year, he's he's really worked on his shot making, his his pull up shot making, shooting off the dribble. Um he's he's you know, he's learning to leverage his strength. He he makes plays in the post. His passing, which was poor last year, he was a poor passer, especially for his position, is better. Um again, small sample size, but he's making better decisions. On defense, he, you know, he's strong. I saw a couple times where John Collins got the ball in the post and Sadiq was on him and he wouldn't even bother challenging him. Um, speaking of plays of the game, I'm kind of pissed off. You didn't you didn't even think about mentioning John Collins. Maybe it's because you're, you're still upset at him because of what he did, not once, but twice in the fourth quarter. But uh, no, I mean, Sadiq was impressive tonight. He's been impressive so far. He did make that play I talked about, the gamble, but 
the great offensive players always gamble for steals like that, gamble for blocks. It's like a normal thing from what I've witnessed in history. All the all-time greats I studied that were non-big men gambled a bunch. So I kind of like that from him because it worked for him sometimes. And he also did make good rotations, especially in the first half. But, I mean, it was it was a promising game. And if this is the version of Sadiq Bey we're going to get, I, I see multiple-time All-Star in his future. And I, I know I, I'm overreacting because it's fun to think about. You know, I'm from Detroit, and I, I would love for him to be in um, a multiple-time All-Star. But if that like if this package of skills we're going to get at an elevated level with better players around him, like that is the definition of an All-Star basketball player. So that would be exciting for him. Yeah, I agree. And, and I'm going to have to, it looks more and more with every game, like I'm going to have to say I was wrong as well. I didn't see the high level player like, you know, you said you were wrong because you kind of had a Clay Thompson shooter comparison for him. I just didn't see an all-star whatsoever in his game. I thought he was kind of like a three and D type player. And so far it looks like he was able to expand his game or the game slowed down for him. Whatever it was, whatever happened this offseason or into year two for Sadiq Bey, it's come back, it's new and improved, and it looks really good. His rebounding numbers are up through three games. He had 16 rebounds in game two, which we haven't even talked about, which was an awful game. Um, I didn't do an instant recap of that one and we haven't really dove into it tonight because of that but he had 16 rebounds in that game tonight he finally hit a few threes he was three of eight he hasn't shot the ball well from three on the season but I think we know he can do that and we'll see that from him combined with the mid post ability to attack the basket and then create for teammates so I'm very excited for Sadiq Bey and you know maybe he can become that second that number two quote-unquote number two guy next to Cade Cunningham and if he is then I'll be happily proven wrong it won't be the first time but overall before we move on to uh, a couple other players on the roster I want to talk about this the three-point shooting in general has not looked good this is something that was talked about a lot last season for the Pistons because of the floor spacing the four poor three-point shooting. I think a lot of Pistons fans, and myself included, thought we were going to see an improvement. We haven't seen Cade on the floor yet, but you know, with his shooting, Kelly Olynyk, Sadiq Bey coming back, Frank Jackson, who I want to get into, dive into a little bit more. What have you seen from the Pistons? Or are, are you? Here's what I should say. Are you nervous about it? Do you think it's a small sample size? Do you think the shooting just isn't there? Do you think they're not getting the right shots? Are we not creating open looks? What have you just kind of seen from the Pistons offense in general that has caused it to not be great and the three-point shooting to be poor thus far? Normally, I'm the guy who who's like kind of lives and dies by shooting variability. I usually just kind of any bad shooting stretch or like abnormally bad shooting stretch, I usually write off the shooting variability. But as I look up and down this roster, as I look at a couple of those misses, I mean, we talked about the Frank Jackson one, which is just, uh, I, there's no level of shooting variability that accounts for the way he airballed that. Um, I, I think that this is just going to be probably a poor shooting team this year. And that, that makes sense because they're, they're not a good offensive team and good offensive teams in today's game shoot the three ball exceptionally well. I'm sure when Cunningham comes back, um, that'll be a lot better. As uh, Bryce Hendricks, our good friend, said, he he might probably is the best shooter in this draft class, which is just insane to think about all the other things he does. One thing I was did Beef Stew didn't take a three tonight, did he? No, and that's the thing with Beef Stew is we've actually seen him. And some people may like this, but we've seen him kind of lean away from the three-point shooting that we saw starting to develop at the end of last season. And I'll be honest, I believe it was in the preseason um, where we saw him take at least a couple, and it didn't look good. So far in the regular season, he's taken one three, and that was opening night. So he's 0 of 1 from three through three games. Now, Beef Stew has looked good overall. We've seen the Beef Stew we all know and love from last year. But no, that's not a part of his game that I think I personally was hoping to see expand. We haven't seen it through three games. Yeah. I, see, I agree with you because I'm not, I'm not the guy who's like, everybody needs to shoot the ball. You need to have five shooters at all times. No, I think you can get away with four sometimes three, depending on who the three guys are. If your three shooters are Clay Thompson, Steph Curry, and Jordan Poole, you'd probably be okay. Um, but uh, I would like to see like one, one and a half, three-point attempts a game for a beef stew. Now, I was listening to the James Edwards episode, and did you chuckle a little, little bit? I'm sure James wanted to laugh, but like since he's got like a relationship with the team, he probably shouldn't laugh about that. But when he, he said that uh, Ben Wallace was showing beef stew post moves, and I'm just thinking to myself, because I was studying Ben Wallace a while back, 
and I, I I know like from watching it firsthand like what kind of post moves Ben Wallace had and those probably aren't the ones we want Isaiah Stewart learning. I mean, I, I feel like we got to be careful here because what I've come to know is Ben Wallace is like the face of Detroit Pistons. And especially from the- I love him to death. I am, yeah. I am his number one fan. There is literally like, I'm like, you could, I could tell you his, his bench, his bed press max, his squat max, his deadlift max. I love the guy to death, but like, you know that you don't want Ben Wallace teaching anybody post moves, not at the NBA level at least. Yeah, from those going to work, excuse me, going to work Pistons, Ben Wallace, I've come to learn, is kind of the face. And, of course, now officially with the with the organization in an official role. But, no, I know what you're saying. And maybe it has to do with just as an undersized big. Like, Isaiah, Isaiah Stewart's weird to me because at times I'm like, man, the footwork looks really good. But then it doesn't always look pretty, if that makes sense. You know, it's not always super smooth and it's a little rough around the edges. But I feel like he does a good job keeping his pivot foot down and navigating things so maybe it's just that way I'm never I don't know that we're going to see a ton of just true post moves from Isaiah Stewart but I want to move into Frank Jackson and we're going to get back to the three-point shooting as you know that's what I did so I, I, I tend to focus on that a lot but you know he's a guy that I was very high on after what he how he finished last season coming into this year I thought he had a chance to really make a huge impact gets a chance to start the first two games does not look good tonight they make the change put Josh Jackson in the starting lineup and I still did didn't think Frank Jackson looked good coming off the bench. Right now, as you've kind of alluded to, right now he's taking shots I just don't think he's capable of making. Like he's just not taking the shots where he can be successful. He's in a role that he's not ready for or capable of being successful in. You know, aside from the one shot that you've mentioned a couple times, what else did you see from Frank Jackson? Like, did you watch this game tonight and be like, man, he's forcing way too much for what his talent level is? See, I don't know if it was forcing though, just because like we talked about it, the lineups they were putting him in. There was four other bench guys, and it wasn't, you know, your Kelly Olynyk and JJ bench guys. It was like your nine through thirteen rotation guys that he was playing with. So I don't know. I I watched uh, Frank Jackson. I remember I used to watch him on the Pelicans a couple years back, and he was a he was like a steady presence. I always thought of him as like kind of a level headed guy who wouldn't really do more than he could, make the right basketball play, which is kind of what you want from your backup point guard. But I don't think tonight, I mean, I think he was just asked to do more than he's capable of. Not that he was forcing it, just that, like, kind of the personnel they put around him when he was in the game was not optimal for his skill set. No, I agree, and I think that goes back to the point I tried to make earlier in the episode of, you know, Kelly Olenek and JJ not being in that second unit puts a lot of pressure on those guys. So maybe when Olenek is with the why. When he is with the second unit and why I like him with the second unit is because he's going to make those roles easier because he can do what we saw him actually do tonight with the starting unit, which is kind of take over a game offensively, not take over a game, but be the focal point of the offense. So if we're going to continue to do this essentially five in, five out, I want to see Kelly Olynyk in that second unit, Josh Jackson in that second unit, and then maybe that puts Frank Jackson in a role that better suits him with some better players around him. I know that makes the, the wing rotation is going to be interesting anyway. My, my other favorite piston coming into the season Hamadou Diallo hasn't necessarily done a lot to really cement himself in the rotation so when everybody's healthy it will be very very interesting to see who's getting those minutes in the second unit but I want to then just go biggest takeaway we've been a week into the season almost um five days three games going back to last Wednesday what's your biggest takeaway just overall through three games of this piston season we haven't got a chance to see K Jeremy didn't play tonight as we've talked about so we've got to see a lot from Killian Hayes Sadiq Bay these other guys some of the bench guys what was what's your biggest takeaway or or maybe something that your your mind has changed your mind as you've actually got to see this team play some live action well what's my biggest takeaway and what's changed my mind are two different things. I think the biggest mind change I've experienced um, through three games is my belief in Sadiq Bay's ceiling, which has changed in a positive direction, as we just talked about. But I think my biggest takeaway here is that Dwayne Casey is the coach of this team. And what I mean by that is he's good enough to be around for the finished product. When I watch them play, they don't, on offense, like, it's not pretty, but it's not pretty because there's not like sets being run and it's not like a coherent offense. The offense is coherent, but because of injuries, because of just overall talent, like the guys who are executing the plays aren't actually executing them. 
to the way that they need to be executed for you to score points at the NBA level. And then on defense, it's a similar phenomenon we're seeing. These guys are putting themselves in the right spot. I mean, for three, two and a half quarters, two and three fourths of a quarter, they rotated perfect to me. They were making every re- rotation, and they—I mean—they were down by eight points with like three minutes left in the third quarter, and then, you know, the straw broke the camel's back, whatever the metaphor is there, and the Atlanta Hawks, you know, opened up the floodgates, and they're just—they're better, tough shot-making team, and it showed. But no, I think Dwayne Casey is scheme has been pretty good through the first three games and i think that once you know everybody grows once Cade and the boys grow up he should still be the head coach moving forward so i want to ask about the atlanta hawks before i give my biggest take takeaway and then we kind of shift gears to the quest for the best what what did you think about the atlanta hawks watching them play tonight i was impressed this is a team that's very intriguing to me trey young looks really really good I think last year was kind of his breakout year, obviously, and I don't expect him to take a step back. I think he's just going to take a step forward. I know he, along with a lot of guys, are having to adjust to the rule changes, but I think good players figure that out, and he's going to adjust. John Collins, the reason I didn't put that in play of the game is because he's not a piss, and that's the only reason. Obviously, just as a fan of the game of the basketball, those two dunks were incredible, and I think he's a really, really good player. I really like John Collins. He was a guy, whenever there was some possible trade talks, I was like, man, if he, we could find a way to get him in Detroit, I would be absolutely juiced. Obviously, that didn't happen. I like Clint Capella. They have Herter, um, Cam Reddish, a lot of really good pieces around there. I don't know if they have the true number two guy or not, but what do you just think about the Atlanta Hawks after watching them play tonight and then just what you knew about them coming into the season? I mean, the number one takeaway is like their shot making is insane. Like obviously Trey Young, he's a, you know he's a scorer. We know it. He can shoot, but like the guys that like in secondary like shot create, it's it's incredible. I mean Kevin Herter, um, Boyan Bogdanovich, Cam Reddish a little bit. Once DeAndre Hunter's back and healthy, he was capable of doing that. Uh, the shot making is insane, and that's huge for the playoffs. You know when they're scheming around your number one guy, and they're gonna make Trey Young have a hard time. They're gonna bring his efficiency down. These other guys are gonna matter so much, and then. Just the unspoken impact of Clint Capella. I, I noticed a couple times tonight. I don't know if you remember. I think it's like it was towards the end of the second quarter. It was uh, it was 49-38, something like that. And Trey Young goes to the rim. And Stu is in the paint. He can, make, he can make a play on the ball, but he has to stay glued to Capella because of Capella's lob gravity. And he just allows Trey Young to get that nice little floater. And it's just things like that. I mean... Think about this. We have not talked for the last, what are we, 45 minutes into recording, 50 minutes into recording. We have not talked at all about Pistons like doing stuff in the paint tonight. And that's because Clint Capella was there. And he didn't have like one of those finger-waving uh, blocks today. But he was just, you know, quietly stopping people from even thinking about going out there and thinking about testing him. So, I mean, that's just the unspoken impact of Clint Capella I talked about this on a different pod. I think it was like the draft deeper pod, but I, Clint Capella is my pick to be the defensive player of the year this year, and we saw so why tonight. Yeah, and so you think about the impact you're talking about, which is a side of the floor, especially for opposing teams I don't focus on quite as much. I guess I should. I should focus more on that while I'm watching and trying to figure out why the Pistons offense isn't as effective as what it should be. But I think where he doesn't get enough credit is on the offensive end, and you brought that up with his lob, gravity. And someone said, like, how do you defend the pick and roll with Trey Young and Clint Capella? I was like, I I don't know. Because if you step up, he lobs it to Capella. If you don't, he has a beautiful floater. If you go under, and drop and all that stuff he can step back and shoot a three and then he has shooters around him not to mention a John Collins who can you know cut to the rim dive to the rim catch a lot I mean it's just it's a very well constructed team you know you you can talk a lot about the construction of NBA rosters and I do on here and I shouldn't judge whatsoever but I just feel like it's a team that came together very very nicely a lot of it through the draft and I think it's very well constructed and I'm, I'm excited to see um, just as a an outsider, obviously, to, to see what that team is able to do this year in the Eastern Conference. So one last thing, I want to just give my biggest takeaway through three games before we get to the quest for the best, and that's that this team has a floor of not being very good. And simply, like, we just may not be as good as what I thought, and I hate to admit that, and I don't want to be, like, hot take after three games, and I realize Cade Cunningham hasn't played yet. I realize Jeremy Grant didn't play tonight, but we've seen some bad basketball already through three games, and... 
I think my expectations were too high. You know, I was talking about possibly getting into a play-in game and, and, you know, this team really competing night in and night out. And I know they're going to compete in the sense of like they're going to play hard, but I don't know that they're going to be able to really challenge teams for wins and we may still be in that 20 win range and that doesn't mean that it's a you know a failure and that Troy Weaver fit you know did a bad job this offseason or anything like that I'm not trying to say that I'm just saying that this team may not be near as good as what I thought they were going to be and from people I've talked to a lot of other people thought they had a chance to be as well maybe once Cade gets back and chemistry is developed and everybody can be in their roles we'll see something completely different but I know I've kind of had to check myself here through three games and probably rightfully so I don't know how you feel about that Matt I'd like to get your take on that before we move to the quest just in terms of what your expectations might have been for this team and if it's changed any through three games yeah i think that like you bryce you spend so much time watching the pistons and you spend so much because you you're you're like me you love basketball and like so you want the thing that you love and you spend so much time on to be a little bit better than it probably is and i mean to me like i've always thought the pistons are probably going to be somewhere between that like 15 and 13 seed in the east just because this is such a strong conference i was watching um I was watching the Raptors-Wizards game the other day, and these are two teams that will probably be, like, somewhere between 8 and 12 in the East. And they were, like, I look at their rosters, and to me it's it's a significant step up above the Pistons. So, I mean, that just tells you right there, this is a bad year for the Pistons to be built the way they are if they were trying to win games. I think that if this was, like, a normal year in the East and they had this roster, you could make a case with everybody being healthy and everything going their way that they'd be a playing team. But I think that the East is just too tough this year. Yeah, that's another component of as well, how much better the East got. So we have about 15 minutes here, and obviously we brought Matt on because he's just a great basketball mind from Michigan and watches the Pistons and loves the Pistons as well, but also because of the incredible, amazing, unbelievable project he did, The Quest for the Best, which is completely out, and you can listen to all the episodes on all podcast platforms. And just spoiler alert, we are going to talk about the results. So if you haven't listened to it and you don't want to know the results, Turn the episode off right now. Go away. Don't listen to it. I'll understand. We get it. All right. But if you have listened to it or you're okay and you're still going to go listen even after we spoil it, we're going to get into that right now. So are you cool with that, Matt? Oh, yeah. But just do me a favor, Bryce. Don't give me your top 10 because we're saving that for something special. Wait, say that again? Again? Don't don't give me your top 10 yet because your full top 10 because we're saving that for something special I want to do in a couple months. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I will not give you my top. I haven't done enough effort. <laughs> when I talk about how much time and effort put Matt in, I, think, I feel like people say that a lot. Like, I put in time and effort and, you know, what? like, Matt really went all into this. It's incredible. If, if for no other reason, give it a listen because of that. But let's get into this. So the first three guys out of Matt's top ten were Steph Curry, Wilt Chamberlain, and Kevin Garnett. So we're just going to start there. Let's just start there, Matt, with the, the three guys, the first three out. You didn't put them in a particular order it's not a top 13 it's not 11 12 13 it's just the next three guys that you felt were worth a mention I will admit KG was surprising to me with that Wilt not being in the top KG even being mentioned was surprising to me and I love KG Wilt not being in the top 10 was surprising to me which one of those three do you feel like you kind of took the most I don't want to say heat but got the most feedback for Really quick, Bryce. I know it's not a top 13, but do you want me really quick to make it a top 13? Yeah, I mean, I would be honored if you would do it on the, on the Motor City Hoops podcast. Um, I would say if I if I had to do it, in my opinion, it's uh, 13 would be Will, 12 would be Steph, and 11 would be Garnett right now. But I think that we'll talk a little bit about Steph in a second, but that would be my top 13 if I did a top 13. Very interesting. So I, I think that we, we will talk about Steph I think the most interesting one to me is KG. So, you know, I said we don't have a lot of time here and they can go listen to the episode to get, you know, your argument for KG. But did it surprise you that KG ended up as high as he did on this list? Yeah, I mean, it's no secret. Uh, A lot of my research was um, inspired by Ben Taylor's Greatest Peak series. And I remember when I came out with the series, when I started working on the series, his, his Greatest Peak series was coming out. And I remember he had an episode on Kevin Garnett. And I'm just like thinking to myself, I'm like, you know, Garnett's a great basketball player, but I always thought he was like, you know, Paul Pierce, Ray Allen level. And that's probably because when I was a kid, he was playing for the Celtics. 
So I never really saw Timberwolves KG. And then plus, you know, the way they they raise you as a kid is if you're playing on a losing team, you're probably not one of the four or five best players in the world, which is, is not a fair way to talk about team sports. But, uh, you know, so I saw his Greatest Peak series on KG. I started reading up more on him. I started watching a little bit more myself. And, I mean, to me, well, first of all, today he's like the perfect basketball player for today's game. I would say if you transported, and I hate I hate doing this, but if you transported KG into today's game, if I'm looking at the depth, like the guys in the league right now, I mean, he's probably a top three guy in the NBA, and we're as talented as we've ever been. Um, that that defensive versatility, the ability to guard all five positions in pretty much any year of the 21st century, I would say. I would say if you go back a little further, he's not strong enough to guard the the dinosaurs of the 90s and the 80s and the 70s. But the passing, the passing that's guard-like, like literally like I talk about Sadiq Bey being an improved passer. KG's on a different level of a passer than Sadiq Bey. I mean, I would say Trey Young's a great passer, like an incredible passer. I'd say KG's a notch below that. And Trey Young's a guard, and he needs to be a great passer. But KG's a big man, and he has the fallaway jumper, and he has the face of game, um, and he can pass like that. So you have to think about that. And then we talked a lot about rotations. This guy, man, good luck trying to find a rotation that he missed. He's so like so fundamentally sound. His instincts are so good, and the portability, the scalability. He can play with anybody because of the way he plays, his unselfishness, his just desire to win he never stops moving around you watch isaiah stewart and you're like man that guy must be really tired he's he's been running around non-stop like a tasmanian devil well kg's like that on, on steroids it's like barry bond steroids um i can't i can't say enough about that guy i just the only advice i have for people listening is like just do yourself a favor and go watch i mean for pistons fans you can probably find some like old school timberwolves pistons games and you you will see Kevin Garnett giving Ben Wallace and Sheed Wallace fits, you know. Yeah, he he was incredible. He was one of my he was one of my favorite players growing up. Um, I guess I just never kind of really thought of him as an all time great. I don't know why. Maybe it was because of the winning stuff. I know he eventually got one in Boston, but yeah, when you talk about kind of fitting into this era of basketball, I think KG really would you know fit very well. So let's get into the top 10 through 6 because there's one right off the bat that I, I have to ask about. So number 10's Kobe, 9's Elijah Wan, 8 Duncan, 7 Bird, 6 with Shaq. And I just have to tell you, so my best friend is a huge Kobe fan and he immediately texts me. I don't even know if he finished the episode, if I'm being completely honest with you, Matt. And he was furious that Kobe was number 10. Has that been the biggest gripe that people have had with your list Kobe at number 10 yeah I mean my best friend one of my best friends he's like Kobe's like you know it's it's his it's his family and then it's Kobe Bryant like in terms of what like things mean to him he was you know basketball player much better basketball player than I was um I would love to see you and him go at it in your respective primes although I still give the edge to you and because that that just that shot making ability of yours but um Kobe was a tough one for me because we talk about inspirations. He He's a big inspiration for this series. Just like, you know, the things that he preached with his, his work ethic and his determination. And the cool thing is, like, if you go back and study it, like, hardcore, those things show on the basketball court. You know, his he's fundamentally sound. His, his jump shot looks the same every time he takes it, no matter, like, how many guys are on him. But um, what ultimately came down to it is, like, that archetype of player that Kobe is, you know, being um, a perimeter-oriented player who on defense is not is not as good as people think in terms of, like, if you look at the overall picture early in his career, I would say he's a, is a pretty good defender. I, I would never say he was all NBA caliber, to be honest with you. I think that was more because... I really don't know why. I guess maybe it was the theatrics. It was people's like tendency to prefer man defense for perimeter players, which early in his career, Kobe was a good point of attack defender. But I would say he was a pretty good defender in his early years. I would say around 2005 when his offensive load increased immensely, he became like an average, slightly above average defender. And then once the Achilles thing happened, it was like just awful defender. 
So if you take that into picture, if you if you summarize all that, say he's like slight net positive defender, right? Which, you know, give or take a little bit. Then on offense, I for him to be any higher than 10th all time, he would have to be like firmly into the top six, top five offensive players all time. And I would say he's outside of that. I would say he's probably like the seventh or eighth or ninth best offensive player of all time. I don't know, like off the top of my head, but I think if you like, if you look at it that way, it's hard to have him higher than 10th. But I do make the the caveat in the first chapter where these 13 guys, these are my 13 guys, but like you could probably mix them in a couple different ways. You know, you could have like for me, okay, if you want to do the Kobe ranges thing, out of 13, I could see arguments for Kobe being 13th all time, but I could also see him being as high as, um, honestly, to be, <laughs> oh, it's going to sound bad. I, I probably couldn't see him any higher than 9th. Okay. No, that's fair. Like I said, like it just, uh, uh, that was the one that I probably got text about the most. So I was just kind of curious with Kobe. Um, and then as we finish it off, so at five, you had Magic, four, Russell, three, Kareem, and then obviously the great finale. And I had the absolute honor and, you know, and was humbled that I got mentioned in the final episode. I appreciate that very much. Um, but between MJ and LeBron, and then I was no longer hon- honored and humbled whenever you finally gave your result of LeBron being your greatest of all time over MJ. So, which I actually text you about as I listen to it, and we talk back and forth. And I actually do respect, anyway, you know, LeBron's longevity. And I know we could get into this and have a whole podcast episode about this. Le- LeBron's longevity and his greatness. I think I, I would be hard pressed to argue against him if somebody wants to say LeBron's the greatest. That's fine, MJ is my goat but I understand why somebody would value what LeBron has done over Michael Jordan and a lot of it comes down to nuance and what you consider greatness or the the context around it so I've liked to give Matt a little bit of a hard time but one thing that you kind of mentioned was I don't know you were kind of raised or you know MJ was number one in your mind through all of this and you kind of had biases going into it so was there do you remember the moment or what happened when you finally realized like man, he, he's not for me. Like, LeBron is the number one greatest player of all time over Michael Jordan. Yeah, well, I mean, without, like, giving away the dramatic part of it, like, I mean, I talk about it a little bit in the ending. Like, that's a true, that's an honest moment. I remember it was... So, to, to take you a little bit backstage, um, I wrote the first five episodes of The Quest for the Best, wrote and recorded them in August, Right. And so I wrote all that and I didn't have my number one all time. I had three through 10. I knew who my three through 10 were, but I didn't have number one when I wrote and record all the episodes at the end of August. So I'm like, okay, once I write and record these, like I'm going to, I'm going to be okay. I'm going to like, it'll come to me. It'll come to me in my sleep or through like, I don't know, some message or something. And it didn't happen like that. Like I, I was left with nothing. And then the weeks kept going on and we're like, three or four weeks away from when the final episode is supposed to release and I'm still like trying to figure this thing out and then you know I'm going back watching whatever and I remember I was watching the um the game five Nuggets Lakers 2020 playoff series this is my second time watching it and since like you know the first time was when it actually happened and I just remember him hitting that shot over I can't remember who hit it over, but, I, you know, they were, I remember because they had been doing what, I mean, pretty much every team since like 2007 has done against LeBron James. They were, they were playing, they were sagging off him on the perimeter, taking away his downhill penetration and trying to make him shoot over the top of him. And LeBron just wasn't having it. And he just, he drained that shot and the way he walked off. And I mean, you know, it was like one of those pictures that you think is like following you as you walk through the room, like he was just staring at me on my laptop screen. And I, I just like thinking to myself, like, man, this guy, even if, even if it's like not like if some, you know, statistician went through and did all the math and like they measured impact throughout their my years and all that, even if that like it's not LeBron yet, like this guy's not going to stop until he makes sure that me and you and everybody who like listens to podcasts or watches the game of basketball He's not going to stop until everyone's like convinced that it's him. And that meant something to me. But I think like my main goal in the whole series is 
at least with the last episode, is, okay, so in the absence of an objective answer, I, I took away the ability for someone to make an objective answer by making the case for both of them. And I think I was fair in that I gave each side enough ammunition to make a strong argument. And so after that happens, they collide and they like negate each other, I think, because I think they're they're equally as strong cases. I really believe that. So in the absence of an objective answer, you need to turn to something subjective, which means that it's um, it's unique to the individual consuming the ex- consuming the experience of the game of basketball. And so for me, I think it was that moment, my unique moment, where that was enough for me to lean that way and to be convinced that it was that direction. But like, I'm one hundred percent open to someone giving me a moment with Jordan where this is why to them in their subjective opinion he's the best of all time but the point is that there is no right answer in that it's up to you the 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 student of the game to make that decision for yourself man i love that and that's why i said like we we could do a whole episode and maybe we will sometime whether it's on this or maybe over at rise or something like that um just talking about it and analyzing and going you know depth into that i have two really really quick questions just you know short answers here and then we're gonna have i'm gonna have to let you go and we're gonna have to finish off the episode but one how much further can steph curry rise um you know, you know, realistically, obviously you're like, oh, he wins three more championships and three finals MVPs. Like that probably not going to happen, but you know, let's say maybe he could get one more championship or something like that, another scoring title. But how much further do you think Steph Curry could rise? Could he crack the top 10? And are there any active players outside the top 13? Give us one that you think is the closest that could maybe crack that if you redid this in five to 10 years. Yeah. Um. Okay. So I don't know if you remember Wes and Bryce, but I called Magic Johnson the greatest offensive player of all time. And I listed him at fifth because I think his combination of being the greatest offensive player of all time with 12 years of all NBA level production and net neutral defense, say maybe ever so slight net positive defense was enough to do that. Well, I think I, I would have to do the math, I guess, on how many more years of Steph Curry I need. But if he becomes the best offensive player of all time, and he he provides similar defensive impact in my eyes that Magic Johnson provided at his time, maybe even a little bit better in his prime years. I could say fifth. He could be the fifth best player of all time to me. And um, to answer your other question, so technically Kevin Durant is the closest, but I really, I hate, oh my God, I hate like sounding like the guy to like to shit on KD because I love him and what he did against the Bucks is incredible, but I, I think we fall too much in love with his scoring and, you know, forget some of the other things like, you know, the reason why, like, I feel like in my eyes, the Nets were kind of, they were okay with Kevin Durant scoring like, well, whatever it was, like 40 points per game on plus six true shooting. Cause like, I mean, I'm sure Budenholzer did the math and he's like, okay, if he's doing this on plus six true shooting, like we can still beat him if we do this and that, you know what I mean? Cause his playmaking is not his balance. I talk a lot about the balance. He doesn't, he doesn't have it all the way there. I would say even Kobe Bryant had a better balance of playmaking and scoring than he did. So that puts a limit on him. And I don't think he's going to be experiencing another peak where I could say that would take him over these 13 guys. If you ask me, say we did this in say we did this in 12 years, I think that Luka Doncic has a serious chance to, to put make some damage on this list. I think he's that good. So Luka over Giannis or anybody else in the league? You know, man, I'm, I've I completely blanked on Giannis. Oh, that's a tough one. Yeah. Ah, man, I wow, they both could be. See, it's hard because I do mine on how did you dominate your era. So with those two, because it's it's weird because I mean I did have four guys technically from the same era in my top thirteen in Shaq, KG, Kobe, and Tim. So it is conceivable to those two both, and then you got Nikola Jokic too. Uh, I don't know between the three of them that's a tough call I guess I would say I would say Giannis you're right um but I I could see in if we did this again in 12 years I could see all three of them being in there 
Absolutely. I just I think it just speaks to the state of the NBA right now and that it's in good hands. A lot of really good young to not that those guys are super young, but younger talent, not definitely at the end of their careers. But Matt, man, this was a blast. I have no doubt that I will have you on again very soon. We'll continue to talk Pistons. We'll have more questions for you about the quest for the best and how the series is going. And I want to give you a chance right now to give to plug all the content you're doing, everything you're doing at Rise Network, blowing that up, and all the content you're putting out. Let people know where they can find you and everything that you got going on. Yeah, so I mean, you can follow me on Twitter at MattIsa15. My first name is spelled with one T. Uh, it's kind of strange. Um, but uh, the quest for the best is now the first season is over. We will have a second season where I do release the raw interviews that I did, and I'm also doing some reactions with some of the people I interviewed their reactions on the list I, I plan I hope to have Bryce on a couple of other people that's going to be later down on the road right now um, I'm going to be doing a lot of writing for Rise Network and hopefully a couple other places I might be announcing soon so stay tuned for that but uh Bryce I had a lot of fun with this man um please let us know um Detroit listeners if you if you had fun with like the doing me and Bryce watching the game talking about it because I'd definitely be open to to doing that with other games in the future yeah absolutely we'll definitely have you back and you got my interest peaked here with the little teaser there so um i feel like we're pretty close matt the fact that i don't know what you're talking about it's a little uh i've been waiting bryce for something solid it's like it's a lot of trust me you're gonna be the first person who knows man but i've been waiting i've been waiting for something solid it's all very liquid right now i got you i got you i understand completely again this was a blast i want to thank west for everything he does it's all behind the scenes he doesn't get any of the limelight so i want to make sure i always thank west for everything he's doing for me and helping make this better and easier and I want to take a chance to plug some of the things going on with Motor City Hoops beyond just the podcast. Make sure you're checking out the Film Don't Lie articles I'm writing and doing video breakdowns for on Detroit Bad Boys, which I'll have the Killian Hayes breakdown hopefully out on Tuesday, if not Wednesday of this week. I also want to encourage you to join the Clubhouse app and get involved in the events we're having, which will be scheduled for pre or post game throughout the week, probably looking at post game here for one of the next couple games. I will not have an instant recap and analysis episode on Thursday, because I'll be coaching my seven-year-old son's first and second grade practice and not able to watch the game live. But I will be joined for a full-length episode by Laz Jackson of the Detroit Bad Boys podcast and website to recap the entire week of Pistons action dropping on Monday or Tuesday. That should be a great one, and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Motor City Hoops podcast. Please give us a rating, drop a review, and subscribe. For more content, including video breakdowns, make sure you follow us at Motor City Hoops on Twitter. I hope you join us next episode. Until then, be safe and be well.